congratulations on the Journalist of the Year award. I know it's uh, last year. You must have been over oh, the moon to get that. Thank you. Yeah, it was a shock. Was it? <laughs> yeah, I thought, you know, who's going to give an award to, you know, a national award to a black woman who lives in the regions? You know, there's a lot of snootiness at network around people from the regions and even more so being from Birmingham. You know, we're never... We're never considered. So it was a shock. I've worked incredibly hard over the years. I'm not black, but I'm working class. I've lived and worked in Bristol most of my life. I've worked Mm. incredibly hard not to get a Bristolian accent. You know, I've been Mm. fortunate, Mm. so that's allowed me to do national radio. You know, but we still struggle with hearing the Bristolian accent on TV, on screen. It's still Mm. considered to be dumb. Have you had to work hard as well to kind of, because I noticed you don't have an accent. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's no way I could have been a newsreader on Sky News speaking with my normal Brummy accent. It's only in the last few years, I'd say, Miranda, that I felt free to allow my flat vowels to shine and to, to allow my Brumminess to come through a bit more because there, there seems to be a sort of a movement towards you being you. Although, you know, there's still in a lot of circles, it's, it's not accepted and you won't get considered for work if you speak in that way. So, yeah, mainstream media's got a long way to go. How long have you been actually working in the media? Oh, um, more than 30 years. Wow. You know, I first, yeah, I know, I first <laughs> stepped through the door of a BBC Radio WM, my local radio station in Birmingham, which was based at Pebble Mill at the time. Oh, wow. First stepped through those doors in 1987 when I did work experience and worked with the late legendary Ed Doolan, who the broadcaster from Australia, who basically, you know, every Brummie, you know, <laughs> probably knows or have heard of. I started off on making his tea, doing photocopying for his show, going down to reception to collect guests, you know, and bring them back up to the studio to be ready for a live interview with him, answering the phones, just doing all sorts of like odd jobs. And, you know, that's where I started, really. Also did work experience for BR&B. It's called Free Radio now. It's like the biggest commercial radio station in Birmingham. Answering the phones on a Saturday for, again, the legendary late Nicky Steele. He used to do a bridal request show on a Saturday morning. So if you're getting married, you know, friends, relatives would phone in and say, can you play a record and, you know, do a shout out for a particular couple? So I used to answer the phones and he'd call me Marvellous Marv, which was so cute. And I was so ecstatic. I was only 16 and just so happy to be in a studio and working for free you know this on top of me like doing my school studies and stuff but that's you know those were the times when I really wanted to see inside a radio studio and see what was going on and get a feel for whether or not I really wanted to work in the industry and going back a number of years ago the industry must have been very different were you sort of one of the few black women in the industry or if not the only one at the time yeah, when I was work experience, I think it was the only other person. I think there was Dulcy Dixon doing um, a show of a, of a Saturday or a Sunday evening. So that was like the African Caribbean specialist show. But I also remember that Femi O.K. was a presenter on the station. She now works for Al Jazeera on a show called The Stream. So she was the only other black female that I saw at the station. I knew the industry was very was not very diverse which was kind of even a surprise you know knowing how mixed Birmingham is and you know the big Jamaican heritage population that we've got in this city but then again when I've looked around on TV and listened on the stations that you know were the popular stations of the day I knew you know there was a lack of representation there so I also knew it was going to be harder for me to get into this industry with that I loved. What is it that drew you particularly towards radio? I think I listened to a lot of radio, you know, as a kid. If it wasn't listening to radio, you know, I was reading books, 
reading the newspaper. You know, my mum used to get the, the daily, what was called the Birmingham Mail, the local evening newspaper. So when she read it, I'd she'd put it down and I'd pick it up and finish it. We'd watch TV news. I'd listen to and B and b a lot. And I would just be so excited by presenters playing music and I love music and I just thought I would love to do that job (laughs) Did you actually think you could? Because for me, um, you know, I've been in industry 30 years as well, I started off doing promotions behind the scenes I actually genuinely thought I couldn't be a radio presenter or a DJ because back then there there weren't any I was the first full time female radio presenter in the country in 92 so before then we had like Annie Nightingale Ranking Miss P, Janice Long but you know, they were what, once a week? if we were lucky. Mm, so I mm. actually didn't think I could, you know, wasn't even really aware of any role models. Did you Did you think you could do this? I, it sounds crazy. I was going to say I had a dream, but it was. <laughs> I really, <laughs> sorry, I, I love really it. did. I really had a dream. I just thought, I feel I have something to say. I would love to find a place for my personality to shine, even though, and this is weird, Amanda, even though I was the shyest, 16-year-old ever, I wouldn't say boo to a goose, but there really was something about radio that made me, you know, radio and the media that made me feel like it could be my future. And again, there was there was no there was no information around as there is now in that you can read lots of stories about how people got into the industry. There was no openness about the industry. I would have meetings with a careers advisor or I'd go to the careers office. They were just you know, a lack of information about how you did it. But the one thing I did know, the one thing I did pick up randomly from Philip Schofield, right? Because he was in the broom cupboard at the time. Oh, yeah. and uh, He did an interview, maybe it was in Smash Hits or something like that. And he said, I started out at radio stations making the tea. I got involved in hospital radio. I read all of this. And so I did the exact same thing. Asked about making the tea, inquired with the hospital radio station. They took me on as a volunteer and I'd visit the wards and take requests and take them back to the studio. And I hung around long enough to kind of be brave enough to say, any chance of me having a go at a show? (laughs) You know, and that's how I then got into or started, you know, presenting as such. So it was tough. And you just, I kind of just lent on my self-belief, I suppose. I just thought, I've got to give it a try. Because if I don't give it a try... I'm not sure what else I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, and like you said, you had a dream. It's a passion and calling. You felt you had to go with it. But, you yeah. know, the industry, I would like to say it's changed massively, but was still vastly underrepresented in the media, whether that's working class. Women were looking at slight improvement over the years, but it's vastly underrepresented by the black community. Any thoughts on what we can do to address this? And do you see some changes? I do see changes, but it's all happening in independent media predominantly. You know, a lot of the positive changes are coming where lots of black, Asian and minority ethnic people are going, you know what, I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about, create my own podcast. And the barriers, the financial barriers have really come down in terms of can do it with your your mobile phone. Plug in your mobile, you know, plug earbuds into your mobile phone. You can record, you can record to anchor or whatever. The costs come where, obviously, if you want to upscale and get a microphone, obviously, in terms of podcast distribution, you're having to pay a host you know to to put your podcast on air usually but now we have anchor anchor's amazing and free incredible anchor's the one great place where you know if if really the funds aren't available start there obviously if you want to get to spotify and all the rest of it you're usually looking to pay a host anchor does share to spotify that's brilliant well, yeah. that's brilliant. So yeah. there's, no, there's no excuse. And people are seeing, Miranda, that there absolutely is no excuse. Why should I wait yeah. for a gatekeeper who's, let's face it, has kept 
black, Asian and minority ethnic people out, done a lot to keep people out of mainstream spaces. And why am I going to wait? So lots of people are doing great things, but I'm an advocate for both things. I'm an advocate for doing it yourself, but also, you know, I've worked in all the big spaces, BBC local radio, television. I've made documentaries for Radio 4 One Extra, so I know what it's like to kind of try and push yourself and your ideas and ask for someone to understand the subject matter enough to go, yes, I want to commission you to make a documentary. There are changes. Obviously, you know, stations like One Extra are brilliant, Capital Extra are brilliant, but also it kind of puzzles me as to why do you need the extra? Why do you not need to kind of hive all the black people off yeah. and all the Asian people off of the Asian network onto a separate station? Why can't you kind of smatter your station with a mix of this talent throughout the day and through the evening? It's how I feel about Black History Month as well. Why, mm. why is it Black History Month? You know, why isn't it our history? I can't stand black history. I don't care for black history because black history is British history, which is every day. Absolutely. And that's <laughs> what we do here on Ujima Radio. Do you know what I mean? We are celebrating black history, black topics, black cultures, black music, 365 days a year. And yeah, Brilliant. it's our history. So yeah, I'm incredibly yeah. proud of what we do here. But yeah. you touched on there about some of the incredible work that you have done and you have. You, you've had an incredible career highlighted by the award that you won in 2019 for the pioneering incredible awesome amazing documentary (laughs) called black girls don't cry what an amazing documentary it publicly recognizes the mental health challenges that black women in britain face today let's talk a bit about that what inspired you to make that documentary it was sparked by me as i always am like being continually nosy on twitter i follow a lot of people i follow interesting creatives and writers who are speaking up about issues that matter to them you know I'm an academic so I'm not always trawling Twitter looking for a story but I found and noticed that there were conversations around mental health and black women in different spaces talking about issues that are affecting them and it it made me reflect on my own experiences you know when I was um, in my 20s and experienced depression and didn't say anything except kind of mentioned it to my friends and didn't say anything to my family and eventually went to see my GP and you know made me reflect on that made me think about one of my actual contributors in the story, Jay, made me think about her. She was very public, always very public on Facebook about her own depression and her battle with depression over many, many years. And it coincided with Jade Laurie Hart, who's the other lovely, wonderful woman in my documentary. It coincided with her getting in touch with me, <laughs> like just out of the blue and going, hello, I write this blog and I do my own show and all this stuff, and, uh, but I am bipolar and I have all the, a host of different conditions. And I thought, well, all of this feels a bit crazy to sit on. There's obviously something more here. And then, Miranda, you know, I went and looked at the NHS data and it shows, it flagged up the fact that black women, you know, from Caribbean women are more prone to different disorders than white women. And it just made me want to explore why. And obviously explore it in a space where lots of people, millions of people are going to listen to it. So, you know, I I pitched it to BBC Radio 4. They actually had the foresight to to commission it, which is incredible. So, you know, you mentioned there about the stats in black women in mental health. And then after we'd had COVID for a while, the statistics came out revealing that black and Asian communities were disproportionately affected by COVID as well. The kind of whole year that we've had. And I would just want interested to know what you think the reasonings for the disproportionality are? Well, the, the, the kind of data shows the impact on 
job and income have an effect. So a lot of black, Asian and minority ethnic workers kind of work in the spaces. You know, they're key workers, right? They are out working in public transport or working on the front line in the NHS or working to prepare our businesses, you know, working in the service industries and so on. So they're out in spaces where they are more in contact with people, with a whole host of people, have to travel on public transport to get to where they need to go. And so, you know, that data shows that all sorts of factors impact. And, you know, the inequalities of income and housing. What's really annoying is, you know, the chair of the BMA just said last week that, you know, despite the report coming out and despite all the recommendations from health professionals about what to do, the government still haven't acted, haven't done anything. And you just think, what else? I, I appreciate the challenges the government's under, but there are key issues here that really need picking up and they're not doing anything. So for the chair of the BMA to stand up and go, what the heck, heck, I say heck carefully, I didn't swear, <laughs> and what the heck is going on is a shock in itself. So disappointing. We only kind of vaguely touched on your documentary there. And for anyone who perhaps hasn't heard it yet, I think such an amazing documentary. I just wanted if you could just share a little bit more about it for our listeners who haven't heard it yet. It's still available as well online when you search for it. But basically, yeah, I springboard from kind of my journey of the details about how I was diagnosed with depression. And then it started me on a journey to explore other women's experiences. So JM, a mother of two, and her in her late 30s, she's had depression for many, many years. So I speak to her across the documentary about how she handles it. And, and then uh, Jade Laurie Hart as well, a young woman who has bipolar and is on a lot of medication, um, talks about how she lives life, but also and how she's kind of exercising her creativity as a, and that really offers her a lot of hope and personal healing around you know she records her own youtube show she creates music she even created music when she was hospitalized you know so it's talking about those experiences i dive into a bit of an alternative therapy although that possibly isn't the right phrase but i went to um, visit an emotional emancipation circle that was held in london by a brilliant clinical psychologist called dr erica mckinnis she's originally from manchester and does a lot of her work in manchester often brings it to birmingham and london african-centered healing essentially so you know i visited that center and spoke to people there who kind of you know, decided this is maybe the way that I want to try and heal myself from mental health or well-being issues. And obviously, you know, I talked to experts like the brilliant Sandra Griffiths, who runs a voluntary organisation here in Birmingham, who focuses on, of course, you know, the treatment for black, Asian and minority ethnic people. And, and, and she highlighted the fact that, you know, there's, there's, there's not enough in terms of culturally sensitive therapies but also that you know much of the work in the community is done by voluntary organizations that don't have enough funding and you know the NHS should really be focusing on you know establishing firm systems that are culturally sensitive that don't have to be all done by charity and volunteers who, who are struggling. You mentioned that the documentary is still available on the iPlayer? I think it's still available on BBC Sounds, but if you search for Black Girls Don't Cry, BBC Radio 4, a link comes up and you can listen to it online. It's half an hour, yeah. Fantastic, absolutely, and I highly recommend it. It's a great listen. If anybody was listening and they had some issues of their own, where would you signpost them to? If they, I mean, you know, there are various places that people go, you know, talk to friends, talk to family, try not to be afraid about disclosing details and how you feel. Obviously, you kind of know your friends and family best. I understand that there is still a taboo amongst black, Asian and minority ethnic families and that some 
parents, aunts, uncles just kind of don't believe in the fact that you can have well-being issues. And yeah. so if that's the case and you don't want to speak to friends and family, try and find any kind of local organisations, charities, voluntary or otherwise that, that help and that specialise in, you know, uh, treatments for black people, for Asian people. If you're feeling like, and if you have the funds, then Barton, which is B-A-A-T-N, is a network of black and Asian fully qualified therapists, the private counsellors that you can go to, and they have a directory. So you can search and see if there's someone near you and inquire direct and obviously inquire with prices. You know, you're normally looking at anywhere between 30 and 50 pounds a session for an hour with somebody. So if you can afford private therapy and you want to go that way, obviously your GP to see if you can get help there. Or, you know, try other therapies. Like I said, there are alternative African-centred therapies, some in Manchester. I... I think it's worth looking to see if there are any in Bristol. We've got a presenter on the station called Zed Regal who also specialises in well-being as well. So there's some incredible things going on in Bristol. Excellent. So, yeah. yeah, reach out. I mean, the first thing is reach out. It does feel it's difficult. You feel embarrassed. You feel as if, you know, am I really OK? Or, no, I'm OK. I'm fine. I'm going to deal with it myself, which is yeah. what I said. Yeah. Um, it's not the best way. It's tough to open up. But, you know, the minute you open up to professional help, of course, not forgetting if you've got people that you feel you can speak to, you know, in your faith organisations, try and, you know, speak up and ask for help. So finally, it has been one hell of a year, Marveen, and we've had the pandemic to deal with and the pandemic of racism, the brutal murder of George Floyd Mm -hmm. and the following protests around the world. And I'm asking all my guests at the moment, if a white person or anybody asked you how to be an ally of the black community, how would you respond? How to be an ally? Wow. I think question yourself about how much you know about the experiences of African and Caribbean people. Question how many friends you have in your circle. Um, Talk to your friends and ask them how they can help you better understand what's going on in the whole Black Lives Matter movement. If it's something that's really confusing to you, I think it's really a good idea to talk. If not, then, you know, follow some of the book recommendations that are out there, you know, in helping you learn more about the experiences of black people and the inequalities that have happened over so many decades. You know, Rennie Edo Lodge is always a good one. You know, why don't talk to white people about race? Try that one. Dr. Robin D'Angelo, White Privilege, she's an American scholar who's written a brilliant book and lots of videos. There are videos as well worth watching on YouTube. Reach out to organisations if you're, you know, again, if you're feeling brave to go and speak to people and you want to go and learn more, find out there are so many events going on, all online, of course, many of which you can access for free. It's a case of, of digging around and searching, but also look and appreciate the kind of our impact and our ancestors' impact on history, on British history. And if that means you go and watch Belle, the movie that Amara Santi made, or you read a book, Black Tudors, by Miranda Kaufman, or, you, you know, you read David, David Olasoga's books, Black and British, and there's a children's version available as well. Go and kind of do your own education in the, in the way that you feel happiest with so that you kind of get an understanding of, of how... Um, black people feel lots of podcasts as well brilliant podcasts you know that that young people lots of young people are making talking about their lives and their experiences could be dope black mums dope black dads the receipts all sorts out there for you to go and dive into